Well, good morning. Turn with your Bibles, turn in your Bibles with me, if you would, to Psalm 43. We're continuing our summer series in the Psalms. Last week, Matt preached on Psalm 42, so my assignment is immediately preceding that. Psalm 43, and if you would please stand with me as we read God's word together. Psalm 43. Give justice to me, O God, and plead my case against an unholy nation. O protect me from the deceitful and unrighteous man. For you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? O send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain and to your dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God, my God. Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why are you disturbed within me? Wait for God, for I shall still praise him, the salvation of my presence and my God. You may be seated. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word. The prophet Elijah, after he had defeated the prophets of Baal, was on cloud nine. Not only had God revealed himself as the only true God of Israel and the world, he also sent rain on the land, which was suffering from a drought. But when King Ahab told the wicked queen Jezebel about what had happened, she sent word to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by about this time tomorrow. Well, understandably, Elijah fled for his life into the wilderness, despairing, even at one point asking God to kill him. And behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, pulled down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left. And they seek my life to take it away. One has to wonder if during Elijah's flight into the wilderness, some of the words of Psalm 43 came to his mind. You are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And oftentimes, the people of God are faced with similar questions. If God is the God of our strength, if he's our rock, our fortress, then why has he left us without help in the presence of our enemies? Why does it feel like the evil in this world is winning and gaining more ground every day? Why doesn't God just extend his hand and rescue us from the deceitful and unjust man? Or at least make things right in the world? Every Christian feels this to some degree or another at some point. Whether it's someone experiencing an intense persecution for their faith in a nation that's outlawed Christianity, or our situation where we don't experience that, but our culture seems to be built around wickedness. We have all asked the question at some point, why, God? 
Why is this happening? And the worst part isn't even the fact that evil seems to be running rampant, but the seeming divine silence. The distance we feel from our Creator. The seeming lack of God's presence in a wicked world. They have pulled down your altars, cries Elijah. There's no true worship of the one true God taking place. And remember, the psalmist is separated from God's dwelling places. Now, what's significant about that is that this is one of the sons of Korah. Their whole MO is being in the temple, singing praises to God, composing songs of worship to him. So for him, the situation that he's in, it's like being cut off from a lifeline. And yet, hope is never lost. Hope is never lost. The psalmist is never brought to total despair. He knows in his heart the character of God. He knows that only light and truth can be found in God. Only God's light and truth can lead us to true worship in spite of the world's evils. In fact, his light and truth must lead us. Now, we don't know the exact situation that prompted the writing of Psalm 43, but we do know that it was written for our instruction. The psalmist penned these words as God directed because God knows what's in our hearts. He knows how to draw our hearts back to him when we feel that he's far away. But our text this morning doesn't begin with a plea for God to draw the psalmist back, but with a plea for justice. Verses 1 and 2 read, Give justice to me, O God. Plead my case against an unholy nation. Oh, protect me from the deceitful and unrighteous man. For you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? I love the frankness of Psalm 43. He doesn't waste any time with pleasantries or formal introductions. He just, he comes out the gate swinging. It almost sounds like he's being demanding of God. Give justice to me. Protect me. But these aren't the words of a demanding man. These are the words of a desperate man. We know that the psalmist is one of the sons of Korah. We don't know who his enemies are, but it's clear that he's surrounded by a nation, or at least a whole lot of people, who hate him and who hate the God that he serves. The adjectives used to describe the people that he's up against make that plain. First of all, they're unholy. The word literally means lacking in covenant faithfulness. They're the exact opposite of who God is. They're deceitful. They love lies. They're unrighteous. They love wickedness. It's obvious that the psalmist is under some sort of attack, and at least part of that attack is coming from people making untrue accusations, slandering him, challenging his very integrity. You can almost imagine a courtroom scene. The defendant is the psalmist alone in the stand. And before him, his accusers, crying out for his condemnation. The people's opinion of him? Decidedly negative. So he goes to God and he says, God, plead my case. Defend me against these people. He understands that God is the only true judge of his character. Only God has the power to defend him to vindicate him. Now, this points to a, a deeper reality that we 
have to come to grips with. It's an uncomfortable truth, but a necessary one. The world hates God, and therefore it hates us, because we serve God. We are foreigners in a strange land. We are a byword among the nations, you and I. Psalm 2 says, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Because we've thrown our lot in with God and Jesus Christ, his anointed, we are reviled. It can be a lonely thing, being reviled. It's not the most pleasant experience. It's almost distressing to see that we're surrounded by a culture that loves evil. And there doesn't seem to be anything that we can do to stop it or to change it. Add to that the fact that we're the ones being accused of being on the wrong side of history. Did you know that you're a bunch of bigots? bunch of sexists and racists and extremists. Yes, all of you. Why? Because we say, you know, maybe we shouldn't be murdering our unborn children. Maybe we should be honoring God's design for sexuality, for marriage. Maybe we shouldn't be medically mutilating young children because they feel like the opposite gender. And most unpopularly, we preach the gospel. All people are accountable to God for their sin. All people must repent and trust in Christ or else experience damnation. We don't say these things out of hatred or spite, but because God has said that this is the way to true life. This is the way to true joy. Not what the world has to offer. Not some synthetic and temporal experience that can't satisfy. And because we say that, The world hates us. Now think about the psalmist. Perhaps he was hated because he loved true worship. As we'll see in a moment, he was desperate, longing to be in the presence of God with the people of God. Perhaps he was going around saying, you know, maybe we shouldn't be bowing down to a bunch of rocks and trees. Maybe we shouldn't be fraternizing with the nations like Yahweh commanded us. Maybe we should be honoring God's law and obeying it. But as you well know, as soon as you threaten what the world loves, it's like standing in front of a raging bull. The slanderous accusations are quick to follow. But it's not even the slanderous accusations of the people that are getting the psalmist down. It's the fact that he feels as though God has abandoned him in the midst of it. Verse 2 says, For you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Do you hear the confusion, the fear in his voice? You can picture him on his knees in some dark hiding place, eyes raised to question, eyes raised to heaven, excuse me, questioning, God, where have you gone? You're supposed to be the God of my strength. And the feeling of divine absence is one of the worst, if not the worst, in the world. Think back to when you were a a young child and perhaps your parents accidentally left you in the grocery store alone. (laughs) Felt like your whole world was falling apart. Everything was over. And for a few terrifying moments, you experienced abandonment, 
fear, maybe some doubt. Do they really love me? Only to have them pop right back around the corner and all was right with the world. Might make you look back now and chuckle as some of you are. But divine absence, that's the feeling that the source of all life and goodness itself has left you to fend for yourself. Even if you know in your heart that that's not true. Look at what the psalmist is saying. It's not accusatory. He's stating a fact. You are the God of my strength. He knows that in his head. But his experience is telling him something different. He's in a confusing and disorienting place. God may be his strength, but it seems as though his strength is gone. God seems so very far away. And so surrounded by his enemies and oppressed by them, the psalmist mourns. And yet, he still cries out to God. That's the astounding thing about the psalms and about this psalm in particular. The author is feeling a major disconnect between what he knows and what he's experiencing. But he doesn't let his experiences dictate what the truth is. He feels the disconnect in his very core. But he falls back on the knowledge that God is his strength. And this is instructive for all of us. If you haven't felt the absence of God yet, rest assured, you will. We all do at some point. In fact, if you want to be made like the Lord Jesus, as we all should as Christians, you must experience it. The psalmist's question isn't so different from Jesus' cry on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the absence of God that we feel is not the same absence that our Lord felt. The Father forsaking his only Son on the cross was the outpouring of his wrath for sin. Jesus was forsaken by the Father so that all who turn from their sin to trust in him would never have to experience that kind of separation. While the divine absence that we feel may be the discipline of God, if you're in Christ, you will never, never, never experience separation from the grace and love of God. Never. And the lesson we can learn from the psalmist's prayer is this. Remember and have confidence in who your God is. Like an anchor holds a ship in place, our anchor must be the psalmist's affirmation, you are the God of my strength. And as we'll see, his confidence seems to grow as the psalm progresses. He begins in a bad place, but the psalm swells to a hopeful climax in the next couple of verses. Verses 3 and 4 read, Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain and to your dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And upon the lyre I shall praise you, O oh God, my God. When I was a kid, my family and I went to a, a place called the Cave of the Winds up in the springs. I don't know if you've been. It's fun. It's a tourist attraction where they, they lead you into the depths of a very large cave. And at one point, the tour guide announced that the lights would be shut off. And in an instant, we were all plunged into the deepest darkness we'd ever experienced. It's a jarring thing. 
It's what I imagine the, uh, cre- like, what the world looked like before God created light. That's how dark it is. And with that darkness came the knowledge of the hopelessness of our situation without light. If anyone had been lost in that cave without light, they would have died. Goner. If for some reason the electricity had gone out, we would have been trapped in that cave. But, thankfully, the lights came on. We were able to walk back out. The psalmist is in a dark place. He's surrounded by enemies who lie about him, who slander him. They oppress him. They threaten his life. He's separated from God's presence, or so he feels, away from the temple. He's completely alone. But in a moment of clarity, he makes his needs known. In verses 1 and 2, there's something missing for the psalmist. And so he tells God what that is. Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. In this dark moment, he cries out for light. And not just for light, but for truth as well. The imagery here portrays God's light and truth as his emissaries, going out from him to give aid to his people who need it. But what are God's light and God's truth? Light is spoken of in many different ways throughout Scripture, and oftentimes when it's spoken of, what's in view is God's illumination. The way he brings things to our minds makes things clearer for our hearts. God's light can also refer to the light of God's face, the light of God's countenance shining on us, which serves to uplift, to bring joy, to dispel the darkness of adverse human experience. John Calvin writes, the term light is to be understood as denoting favor. For as adversities not only obscure the face of God, but also overcast the heavens, as it were, with clouds and fogs, so also when we enjoy the divine blessing which makes rich, it is like the cheerful light of serene day shining around us. Remember, the psalmist's experience is telling him that God is far from him, that God has somehow rejected him, So he calls for more light, the light of God's face, to shine on him, to drive the dark of doubt away, as the hymn says. He asks for a renewed experience of God, and with it, deliverance from his enemies. When God's light shines, the darkness must flee. And then there's God's truth. This goes hand in hand with the psalmist's cry for justice. While his enemies are armed with the powerful weapons of slander and deceit, God comes with truth. Truth. Not only does this truth destroy the arguments of the unrighteous man, but it also reveals God's faithfulness to his people. The truth of God is found in his promises. Promises like, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or in dread of them. For Yahweh your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you, nor will he forsake you. Or do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will make you mighty. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Psalmist is fighting. He's trying to claw his way out of this pit that he's in. He's grasping for God like a drowning man might grasp for a life preserver. 
He's begging for God's light and truth because he knows they're the only things that can deliver him from this awful circumstance. In a very real way, he's begging for the clarity of God's word. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, Psalm 119 says. And we know that verse, but it continues. I have sworn and I have confirmed to keep your righteous judgments. I am exceedingly afflicted. Oh, Yahweh, revive me according to what? Your word. He wants to remember the promises of God so that they can comfort him in his affliction. In remembering God's word, he knows that he can be revived again. Verse 3 concludes with, Let them lead me, let light and truth lead me to your holy mountain, to your dwelling places. God's light and truth are the means by which the psalmist can go back to God's presence. You can almost feel the excitement as he thinks about going back to the temple, being back with God's people, exulting in the God of his strength, singing songs of praises, like, from my distress, I called upon Yah. Yah answered me. He set me in a large place. Yahweh is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good, for his loving kindness endures forever. And then the psalmist makes a vow. He makes a promise to God. Verse 4 says, Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God, my God. Notice the future tense, I will. In other words, it's not happening right now. The psalmist is saying to God, I haven't been delivered yet. And I don't know when that will be. But when that happens, the first place I'm going is to your altar. It almost sounds like a quid pro quo. You do this, I do that kind of deal. But that's not what's happening. The psalmist knows that God will deliver him. That's the hope he's holding on to. And the part he's most excited about is being in God's presence again. That's where God's light and truth will lead him. And in our modern day, we call that a delayed gratification. Don't you just hate that? You know you're going to get something at some point, but you don't know when. It's the worst. But it's a good way to train people. It's a good teaching tool, especially with children, so that they don't become spoiled brats. It was used with me. My mom can attest. She's right there. God uses delayed gratification to sanctify us, just as he does here in Psalm 43. Consider this. The psalmist is exactly where God wants him. He's in the perfect teachable frame. Because in this moment where he feels that God is furthest away, God is training him to cast himself on God all the more. Look at his words. I will go to God my exceeding joy. Wait a minute, exceeding joy? Just a second ago he was saying, why have you rejected me? You can see God's light and God's truth coming to his mind in that moment, working on him. He remembers the light of God's face and the truth of God's word and the effect that they had on him, and he longs to feel that again. God, I'm surrounded by people that hate you and hate me. Unholiness, deceit, unrighteousness are all around me. 
and it seems like nothing can stop them. I'm alone, I'm overwhelmed, I'm confused, because I know that you're the God of my strength. Your light and your truth will lead me. Your God, my exceeding joy. Do you see that how in this dark and confusing moment, the thing that gives him the most hope is the truth about God? When he's not feeling strong, he reminds himself that God is his strength. When he's not feeling exceeding joy, he reminds himself that God is his exceeding joy. He's not in God's presence right now, but he reminds himself that God will lead him back. When he's surrounded by his enemies, he reminds himself that God is still his friend. He's constantly reminding himself, constantly casting himself before the Lord. I want to back up and notice something crucial for a moment. It's a small detail that I, I think we can miss. The psalmist makes plans to go to a specific place, and it's the altar, the altar of God, the altar where atonement for sins was made by animal sacrifice. In one of the darkest moments of his life, the psalmist is thinking about going before the altar to have his sins atoned for. That's the central part of his worship. The anguish he feels from the oppression of his enemies is nothing compared to the anguish of being separated from God because of his sin. And I pray that if you don't know Christ, that you would feel that same anguish, that it would drive you to the cross. And I pray that if you do know Christ, that you would also go to the cross. In the cross where our Passover lamb was slain, we find true peace, true communion with our Lord. Have you turned from your sins to trust the living God? I pray that you have. And if you haven't, I pray that you would. You can find comfort there for your weary and sin-sick soul. And just as the psalmist made plans to go to the altar, make plans, Christian, to go to Christ daily. No matter the circumstance, good or bad, vow in your heart to remember the gospel of our Lord daily. Nothing in this world comforts quite like the grace of God. And at the end of verse 4, he says, And upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God, my God. There's something about musical worship that's so healing to the soul, and that's why the psalmist includes this in his plans. When God has delivered him from his enemies, when atonement for sin has been made, there in the presence of God, his exceeding joy, he's going to sing. He's going to sing. I don't know about you, but I look forward to singing on Sunday morning. Sometimes more than I do the sermon. No offense, Matt. A hymn can communicate deep truths that sometimes a sermon or a book can't. And how incredible is it that while he's surrounded by his enemies, the psalmist is thinking about the songs he's going to be singing. Imitate the psalmist in this regard. Now let's be honest. We're surrounded by enemies, just like the psalmist. It's already been mentioned, but again, we live in a nation that prides itself on being built on unrighteousness. I've already mentioned abortion, Sexual deviancy running rampant. 
the gospel is considered foolish, the bride of Christ is mocked and slandered, it's easy to look at these things in despair, to get discouraged, to get disheartened, wondering where could God possibly be in the midst of it all. And the last thing we tend to think about in those instances, hmm, I wonder what I'm going to sing to God on Sunday morning. Oh, that we would experience change in that regard. Maybe that's why the psalmist asks for God's light and truth to lead him. We need them to break away from this darkness and deceit, to break through it all. When the light of God's face and the truth of God's word take us by the hand and lead us back to God like little children, then we have something to sing about, don't we? These couple of verses are the psalmist's confident hope that God's light and truth will deliver him from his foes and lead him to true worship again. And after this comes that famous refrain, verse 5. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Wait for God, for I shall still praise him, the salvation of my presence and my God. Now, Matt gave a wonderful exposition of this refrain last week, since it's also found in Psalm 42. So I won't belabor that point again, but I want to relate it back to verse 3, where the psalmist asks for God's light and truth. Remember, the, the psalmist desires that God would send these things out, his light and truth, to lead him. That's what he's lacking. When the light of God's face shines upon him and God's promises are fulfilled, he'll be able to go back and worship in the sanctuary again. He'll be vindicated before his enemies, delivered from their deceitful, unholy, and unrighteous taunts, God will make things right again. But that's not happening right now. Remember, the psalmist is asking for these things to be so. Making plans for the future, what will happen, but hasn't yet. You can almost see the rise and fall motion of the psalm. Verses 1 and 2. He's pleading for God's justice against his enemies. He's in a bad place. Verses 3 and 4. He's almost caught up in thinking about what he's going to do once God has delivered him, and the joy he'll experience. And then verse 5, he comes back to reality and remembers, oh yeah, I'm still here. I'm still here. So he talks to himself to keep himself from slipping back into despair. And the encouragement is, wait. Wait for God. For I shall still praise him the salvation of my presence and my God. The great theologian Tom Petty once wrote in a song, the waiting is the hardest part. And he's right, isn't he? We don't like to wait for anything. We want everything right now. But here's the psalmist exhorting himself, no, wait. Wait for God. And part of him saying that is, well, what else can you do? You don't have all power, like God does. But perhaps a better word to express what he's feeling is hope. The psalmist's confident expectation isn't that his life will improve, or that his enemies will all just go die, but that God, his salvation, will show up. 
that God will make an appearance, that God's light and truth will lead him back to where God dwells. And when that happens, he'll be able to sing that song that he was talking about. Now, the big question before us now is, so what? So what? Why should we care about the psalmist's woes? Don't we have enough angsty songwriters out there already? Well, we should care, for one, because God put this psalm in his word. That's reason enough for us to listen. But honesty also demands that we listen and learn from it. Why? Because all of us know what it feels like to look out at the state of our nation and get really, really discouraged or even depressed, or despairing. We're watching Romans 1 unfold before our eyes like a horror movie. It's kind of impressive. Our nation is currently under God's wrath. We're not heading towards it, folks. We're there. We're under it. We're in it. And we want God to make things right because it affects all of us, doesn't it? The world is opposed to us, and it's impossible to go throughout life without feeling that opposition on some level. Perhaps you've had friends or family rebuke you or even insult you for the Christian virtues and beliefs that you aspire to. I know I have. Maybe it's people at work who just can't stand everything you stand for, no matter your character. For you parents, maybe you look out at the world and you recoil in horror at the things your child will have to go through, even more so if they profess faith in Christ. Every day there's always something in the news that slanders Christ's bride, calling us all sorts of horrible and untrue things. And again, even more distressing than that may be the divine silence. All these things happening, and where is God? Why doesn't he stop their hateful speech, their slanderous mouths? Why won't he intervene, vindicate us, vindicate himself? Why doesn't he make it all just go away? I don't want to have to deal with it anymore. Why can't it all just go away, God? We may be tempted to cry out with the psalmist, why have you rejected us? Why do we go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Remember Elijah from earlier? You know how that story ends? God takes him up into heaven on a flaming chariot. He literally plucked him out of the world. Elijah didn't have to deal with Ahab or Jezebel or the nation's idolatry or anyone trying to kill him anymore? Sounds like a pretty good deal. I'd like that. Not going to happen to you or me. So what do we do? Do we pray for an Elijah experience? Do we go into the mountains? Live in the woods? Till Jesus wipes all evildoers from the face of the planet? No. No. Do we stay at home? Refuse to interact with anyone? Just be hermits? No. Well, then what? How do we deal with this feeling of divine absence in the face of such terrible evil? How do we overcome the feeling that the world is winning? We listen to the writer of Psalm 43. Three things, I think, we can glean from his writing. First thing, no matter what, be the opposite of what the culture is. Holy, righteous, and having integrity. The psalmist is lamenting the state of the nation around him, the character of the people who hate him, and the implication is that he's different. Why? 
because he asks God to judge him and to plead his case. If he were living like the world, asking God to judge him would be a very bad idea. Only God can judge me is true, and that should scare you. Granted, the psalmist is a sinner, of course. We all are. But it's clear that he at least understands the character of God, what it means to obey him and serve him. So where the world is unholy, you be holy. Where the nation is unrighteous, you pursue righteousness. Where everyone around you might be in love with deceit, you have integrity. When those close to you and those in the world accuse you and slander you because of your faith, don't respond in kind. William Plumer said, As the righteous cannot practice the deceit and injustice, nor use the weapons employed against them, the only resource left to them is to enlist God. God is your defender. God will vindicate you. Cry out to him when the evil of the world overwhelms you. But don't give in to it. Second thing, be led by light and truth in the person of Jesus. Become like him by following his lead. Light and truth meet in the person of Jesus Christ. What the psalmist was asking for, we have received in fuller measure. The Son of God is the light of the world. He's the truth of God in human form, the Word. He leads us throughout life as our faithful shepherd. When you're tempted with the psalmist to say, why have you rejected me? Turn your thoughts to Christ. He's the assurance that the Father will never reject you. Are you feeling the divine absence? Do you feel separated from God? Meditate on the fact that Christ is with you. Fall back on his words to the disciples at the end of Matthew, which weren't a lie. I am with you when? Always. Always. Not sometimes. Not part of the time. Always. Not here and there. Always. Follow the Lord where he leads, even into suffering. Our Lord suffered and so must we. He was hated and so we must be hated. He came into a world that hated him and so we must live in a world that hates us. He even experienced anxiety and depression as he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. And yet, he trusted the Father. He cried out to him. He had the confident expectation that God would act on his behalf. Set things right again, just like the psalmist had that same confidence. Jesus waited for God, and he gives us the strength to wait for him as well. Consider also that your constant exposure to the world's evils are sanctifying you. Think about this. Jesus prayed for us to the Father and said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. What? But sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Our Lord doesn't want us out of the world until it's time. And until that time, his desire is that we'd be sanctified. This is the will of God, your sanctification. And not only sanctified, but sanctified in truth. 
He sent us the Holy Spirit, whom he said would do what? Guide us into all truth. He wants us to grow up, and part of growing up is growing pain. Through our adverse experiences with the world, God is making us more like Jesus. Not only that, but he's weaning us off of our dependence on the world. He's showing us that he's better, infinitely better than anything the world has to offer. And with that, he points us to his word, where we find encouragement, the salve that Matt so eloquently spoke of for our weary souls. Most significantly, Jesus leads us into the presence of God. The psalmist asked for light and truth to lead him back to a physical location, God's temple, God's tabernacle. But now that's us. We're the temple of God. God dwells in us. The Spirit of God dwells within us. And through Jesus, we have access to the Father. Where the psalmist had to go to the altar to be cleansed with the blood of sheep and goats, we've been cleansed with the better blood of our Lord Jesus. And so we can go before God whenever we want, no matter where we are. In the darkest place or the lightest place, we can go to God. And we can go confidently, expecting God to act. His presence is never too far from us. Finally, the third thing. When evil seems overwhelming, look forward to worshiping the Lord with his people. Look forward to worshiping the Lord with his people. This is good practice for us all. Look forward to being in God's presence. Look forward to going to church, being with the people of God. Make plans to praise him. You don't have to do it in the moment, necessarily. Nowhere in scripture does it say that the Christian life is supposed to be one of constant, unbroken joy. We don't get that until glory. That's not for this life, but for the next But that doesn't give us the excuse to mope. It doesn't give us the excuse or the allowance to be forever gloomy, right? Mourn, yes, but don't stay there. Make plans with the psalmist to go before God with singing, triumphant singing, knowing that he will make things right in the end, even if he's not right now. It might not be that moment, might not be that hour, that day, or even that week. But let the thought of being with the church, singing praises to our God, dispel some of the darkness that your soul may be experiencing. And if that lifts you out of it, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. But if it doesn't, then say to your soul the words of Psalm 43. Oh, my soul, wait for God. Wait for God. For I shall still praise him, the salvation of my presence and my God. Let's pray. As Jake and the music team comes up. Lord, we're surrounded by darkness in a world that's full of it. 
And sometimes it seems that it's winning, but we know in the end that you have the victory. And in you, we too have the victory. And so, Lord, send your light and truth and let them lead us. Don't let our experiences lead us. Let your light and truth lead us to the place where we can worship God again. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.